All right, new year for the podcast, fresh start. We're approaching 2,000 downloads. I'm feeling good about this. Let's get this going on the right foot with Josie and the... You can't say that, James. What? Pussycat? James, lewd. Just say cat. Josie and the cats. Yeah, yeah, see, see? Look at the, the guy from the censors. He's smiling so much right now because you didn't say the P word. Uh, Pem? That's just one of your Pokemon plushies. Hey, he's way smarter than most people from the censors. True. Who's that Pokemon? Is it just me, or are they upset they're not on the list? Probably upset that they're not on the list. <laughs> there are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The Penny and James can a sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello, one and all, and Happy New Year. I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome once again to the Pemmy and James kind of, sort of, hopefully funny cartoon podcast. And come on and watch the good guys win today with Josie and the Pussycats. Long tails, ears with hats. To be sure. Of all the quote-unquote Scooby clones, do you think this is one of the best known? I, I would think so. I'd also say it's probably the best one, but... Before there were any pussycats or rock and roll theming, there was simply the comic book She's Josie, later shortened to just Josie, or, well, Josie, not, you know, launched in 1962 by cartoonist Dan DiCarlo as part of the growing empire of Archie Comics. Josie's name was derived from DiCarlo's wife, not the only time he'd take inspiration from her either, and it was another teen comedy in the Archie vein with ditzy Melody and Brainy Pepper as Josie's main friends, alongside Josie's boyfriend Albert, Melody's boyfriend Socrates, or Sock for short, and the over-the-top Cabot twins, Alexander and Alexandra, along with the latter's cat, Sebastian. There would be classic teen misadventures with Alex pursuing Josie and Melody alternately, Alexandra trying to sabotage Josie's romance with Albert, and so on. And the only thing that went through my head was like, dude, so great. Oh. <laughs> it, it's kind of interesting, though, when you think about it, because DiCarlo's style kind of became the Archie style eventually. A few years later, Filmation was making tremendous waves on Saturday morning television with Archie Andrews himself and his own main cast, to the point where the luckiest damn man in comics was charting songs on pop radio. Dude, Sugar Sugar is a dang good song. Mm-hmm. Now, William Hanna and Joseph Barbera had previously tried to create their own singing group that would go on adventures, Mysteries 5. But those meddling kids wound up having a somewhat different fate altogether. Zoinks! Yeah, check out our Scooby-Doo Where Are You podcast for more details on that. So in 1969, Hanna-Barbera went to Archie Comics to see if they could get the rights to one of their other properties, and they got Josie. I mean, if you can't get the best, get the second best, I guess? Well, they got a redhead either way. <laughs> Personally speaking, I would prefer Josie over Archie, but that's just me. Well, 
Yeah, Archie's got kind of an ear thing going on. And if it did, he's got some buck teeth if he's being drawn by Bob Montana and not Dan DiCarlo. But... Now back to our story. This is where things start changing fast. Oh, I'm sorry, Pemmy. Did you want to continue? Oh, I was just going to say, I thought it was funny that despite that we're on a podcast, when I said that line that between you and I line, I actually still did the whole like hand on side of mouth thing, despite the fact we're in a podcast. It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is where things start changing faster than they normally did for this genre of comic, which made pinning down what happened when and at whose behest a little difficult especially since separate Wikipedia articles I read offer somewhat conflicting reports, and I can't seem to find any other historical retrospective covering the whole kit and caboodle. After squinting at scans of the liner notes to the Rhino Records reissue of songs by the prefabricated real-life girl group brought on to portray the comic characters, I think I have it somewhat close. Hit us with it, man. You see... Hanna-Barbera wanted more than another hit cartoon. They were aiming for cross-media success like the Archies had. So they went to La La Productions to create a trio of performers who could portray Josie and company in live-action segments and also do the actual singing, basically taking the Archies formula one step further. Because we didn't have a live-action Archie Andrews singing Sugar Sugar. Those were just session musicians. I don't even want to imagine what a live-action Jughead Jones would look like. Uh, Outside of Riverdale on CW, anyway. That doesn't count. (laughs) I think there was an 80s live-action Archie reunion thing, too, but that's beside the point. That thing was terrible. You see, meanwhile, the comics were introducing changes to make a more musically inclined product to match what the cartoons would be doing. In 1969... Josie meets Alan M., or Alan Mayberry, depending on the source, an unusually hunky folk singer, and sets off to form her own band with Melody and a new kid in town, Valerie. They were dubbed Josie and the Pussycats with outfits inspired by a costume to Carlo's wife wore in 1962. Damn. Now, Hanna-Barbera started the storyboards for the cartoon apparently using Alan, but not including Valerie, seemingly opting for Pepper to be the third member of the group. While at the same time, Lala executive Danny Jansen was was casting his trio, which would comprise Kathleen Doherty as Josie, Patrice Holloway as Valerie, and Cherie Moore, later to be known as Cheryl Ladd, as Melody. Now, it's Patrice's voice you hear singing the title song and many of the other songs on the show. Patrice Holloway is also a black actress, and Hanna-Barbera wasn't intending to use a black character and said they wanted Patrice recast for the sake of the planned live-action segments to go at the end of the cartoon, something that would match their presumably intended use of Pepper. Jansen, however, held his ground, stating he believed he cast the strongest vocalist to fill the part and Hanna-Barbera relented, redoing the storyboards to accommodate Valerie instead of Pepper, and thus making Valerie the first African-American female lead in any cartoon. Yay for progress. (laughs) Even if it was forced. Yeah. And boo for the resulting budget constraints the uh, changed storyboards led to. But to offset that, by sheer coincidence... Word got around to a lot of the top session musicians in Los Angeles who said, we'll work for scale because of the stand you took on behalf of Patrice. 
Nice. Indeed. Now, considering this show is often compared to Scooby-Doo, swapping out the bespectacled, short-haired Pepper might have been for the best, since comparisons to Velma Dinkley would have been inevitable. That, personally speaking, I like Valerie. Also, those live-action bits never materialized, though you did see the, the, the actresses on the cover of their album. So that's where we wind up with Josie and the Pussycats debuting on CBS on September of 1970. And what did materialize was a show that wasn't simply equal parts Archie and Scooby from a more feminine slant. So that's a kind of like a comedy take on old like Johnny Quest to an extent, too. Yeah. In the show, the, the villains almost never needed unmasking like in the Scooby formula, and their criminal plots, where applicable, were a good bit more ambitious than the real estate scams and inheritance hustles of a typical Scooby villain of the time. It, it really does just kind of feel like they, they stumble upon like the plots of rejected Johnny Quest villains. I know I just said that, but that's what it feels like. Or rejected James Bond villains, but we repeat ourselves. Gotta, gotta keep it tied to Hanna-Barbera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the band and their entourage toured the world while recording their number one summer jams and just kept getting entangled in messes that I'm sure the likes of Jefferson Airplane or Three Dog Night never came close to. As an aside, can you imagine Grace Slick and Paul Cantor of the Airplane as cartoon characters? No, but I'm just, for some weird reason, got, like, this image of, like, Ringo Starr going like, Hey, Paul, you remember that time we stopped that mad scientist? I wouldn't be surprised if that actually happened in the Beatles cartoon. Ugh. God, pro- yeah, I, I think actually it did. God, that thing is... The Beatles cartoon is not good. <laughs> How many band cartoons about real bands are? How many are there even? I mean, I know there's Jackson 5, The Beatles... There's New Kids on the Block, Walk there's Kids Play. Was... Does MC Hammer count? I mean, he's not a band. Technically. There was that one thing Rick Springfield was involved in. Oh, yeah, that was like magic something. Um, but yeah. Regardless, in the translation from comic to cartoon, there are some characterizations changed. Alan M. never performs a song in the series or even picks up a guitar unless he's lugging it around, leaving him more or less as the roadie boyfriend. Pretty much. He's also kind of like the bodyguard in a way. A little. Well, Alexander's somewhat unscrupulous nature is significantly reduced in favor of him being a friendly coward. Not unlike Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. But more egotistical than Shaggy. Right. And probably smarter. I'll, I'll throw him that bone, too. Yeah. He's just not nearly as scheming as his comics counterpart. No. Like, I think they kind of drained the scheming part into, like, just Alexandra. So... Looking at our voice cast, Level-Headed Everywoman Josie is performed by Janet Waldo, who we've heard many times on the podcast as Penelope Pitstop and Grandma Adams in the new Scooby-Doo movies crossover with that family. But she's probably best known for Judy Jetson and, well, this part. Yep. We also have prior experience with her boyfriend Alan's voice actor, Jerry Dexter, as Drac Jr. in the Drac Pack. Yep. And, of course... Further fueling the Shaggy comparisons, Alexander Henhouse Capit the Third is performed by Casey Kasem. Wait, is his middle name really Henhouse? That's what I remember reading. 
I actually did not know that, despite liking this character. That's hysterical. Let me double check real quick. A few moments later. Maybe I'm misremembering. Uh, yeah, like, if it's not bad enough that he's kind of looks like Shaggy, kind of acts like Shaggy, he also sounds like Shaggy. Mm. <laughs> Which, they actually kind of made a joke about that in uh, Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated, because uh, there's an episode where Velma is trying to get Shaggy to dress better, and one of the things she gets him to wear is a pair of new pants, and it's literally Alexander's pants. Oh, no. <laughs> For the rest of our cast... Valerie would be performed by Barbara Perriott, her most frequent reoccurring role, with her career being mostly focused on costume design. And Jackie Joseph, a character actress whose roles ranged from Audrey in the original Little Shop of Horrors to Mrs. Futterman in the two Gremlins movies, performed Melody's voice and charming giggle. Nice. Alexandra's sneer comes from the unlikely source of former Mouseketeer Sherry Alberoni, her first of several voices through the 70s and 80s, including Wendy on the Super Friends. Wow, I actually didn't know that. I feel like I should. And finally, and of course, the sounds of Sebastian Snicker is courtesy of Don Messick. Yes, a cat gets the Muttley Snicker in this case. Modified a smidge, but still, yeah. In some episodes you get to hear, like, Don Messick actually make meows, which... Feels kind of weird. <laughs> so, anything else we wanted to add before we get to the episodes? Mm, not that I can think of. I think we covered this pretty good. All right. Although, it just occurred to me, quick content warning. We're going to be discussing some material that has not aged well. We will uh, discuss those matters when we reach them, but uh, this is a content warning for anybody who... Uh, might potentially take any offense. We're not going to say any anything untowards. We're not going to play any clips of anything untowards. But there will be discussion of it. Just trying to cross our T's and dot our I's here. Yep. Just letting you know all in advance. And to be sure, this is not representative of the series as a whole. We just happened to look for plots we enjoyed and or, or wanted to focus on specific characters and... Uh, well, this is where we accidentally wound up. It was a different time. So let's get started with our with our first episode, the Swap Plot Flop. Starting at a gig in um, somewhere in the Arabian Peninsula, a pair of men in what looked like Royal Guard uniforms identify Valerie as the one they're after. Now, their accents are kind of generic foreigner, but their halting speech is a little pathetic by today's standards. Again, different time. Yep. Now, after the, the ladies perform their last song, Alexander observes the Pussycats are properly world-famous, but Valerie says they're also broke. Travel expenses, I'll bet. Yeah. Planes ain't cheap, even back then. We get Alexandra's shenanigans as she takes a chair Alan pulls for Josie, and then the guards approach and make an offer for the band to, p- to play for royalty including a big old bag of old-fashioned gold coins. Needless to say, this guy Alexander sold pretty fast. To be sure, he's all too happy, having worked that night's gig for Peanuts, which Melody's happy to literally work for. Salted Peanuts are good. Now, at the Royal Jet, against a sunrise background so stylized, 
it could only be of its era, the 1970s. I mean, wow. (laughs) The group pulls in with their gear, and the guard types observe that their plan is working perfectly. And cue the theme song. Not literally. Not now, anyway. I do actually really like that satellite's background. (laughs) Now, after the title card, we see the crew enjoying the luxury and Alexandra wanting to shove Josie off the couch made for two so she can have Alan all to herself. But Alan is unmoved. Literally. I also like that Sebastian is fishing with the one, trying to fish for the one fish that's in a random fishbowl. Right. Why would you have a fishbowl on a freaking like, plane anyways? Well, Nick Fury certainly wouldn't like that. If Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was any indication. Also, we get to see Melody literally fell at eating grapes, which is <laughs> impressive. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm amazed this woman can tie her shoes. I'm amazed this woman can function at all. <laughs> also, if you look carefully, Valerie's magazine hints at what's to come in the story. That's actually impressive uh, foreshadowing for a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. But yeah, you're right. Now, Alexander checks in with the pilot about when they land and discovers the question is actually, what pilot? There's no pilot, and Alexander freaks out, causing the plane to flip around in ways that I really don't think would be humanly possible. Yeah, Valerie realizes it's on autopilot and goes to reset the plane, landing Sebastian in the fishbowl. I gotta admit, that's some impressive autopilot for like what 1969 <laughs> yeah also notice there's a hookah in the foreground at one point that would not pass today <laughs> i also have to imagine the fishbowl is bolted down i hope so well, how would you bolt down a fishbowl i can think of a couple ways but uh we're picking at straws here true this is far from a now wait just a minute moment <laughs> I'm sure we'll get one of those eventually. Eventually. And speaking of bolting, Alan plots for them to bolt for it the second the door opens. Only for there to be no rampway or the like waiting for them as they fall onto the tarmac and are faced with an entire platoon of armed guards. I don't know why exactly they freaked out. I mean, yeah, it's weird that the, the autopilot was there, but I mean, they had random guard guys like say, hey... Like, it looks like what you would ex- should have expected to be greeting you, I guess. So in their panic, Alexander spots some camels, and Melody, sitting backwards as they're about to start their escape, assumes hers doesn't have a head. Yep. Which means that, you know, they just stole two camels. The chase is on, and the camels go right to a city, where they're locked in and surrounded by more of the same unit of guards. To which Alexandra still keeps claiming that, you know, no, 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 this is fine. <laughs> At least until the whole gate thing, where he starts worrying about being boiled in oil. Oh, I actually said Alexandra, not Alexander. Oh, okay. So in the middle of all this, uh, the royal advisor and the chief minister appear. And now the orientalist tropes start to pile up a little bit more, as the group is called... Oh, great musicians from afar. And uh, one of them, and the, what is it, the great advisor is obviously voiced by Casey Kasem. Yeah. So they explain that the princess Milwilla 
has been abducted by the Evil Eye and his band of, and I quote, Hooded Desert Nomads. Wow. And by band, they mean two. (laughs) So, uh, you know, maybe they're the Simon and Garfunkel of Desert Nomads. Just one less person than Josie had. I took a little more interest in that name, Milwilla, and wanted to look up the etymology. But a quick search couldn't identify the name's origin, other than it being a name that's actually used in real life. But a side effect of this cartoon being so popular is that results involving it are the top ones for that name search. Ah. So, inconclusive. But it is a real name, not a made-up one. Well, we did some research point for them, I say. Especially considering it's far easier to research stuff now than it was, you know, back in 1969. And by the way, Melody asks if a desert band is like a rock band, and Valerie has to shut her up. It's like, don't mind her. <laughs> Please continue. You know, it turns out the evil eye has hypnotic powers, and the, uh, the courtiers want Valerie to act as a stand-in since she's a picture-perfect match for Milwilla. How coincidental. Yeah, coincidence. So many cartoons rely on it, don't they? Yeah. But then again, so do so many other forms of media. Yeah, the whole Prince and the Pauper philosophy, I guess, in this case. The idea is, with Valerie posing as the princess, they hope to buy time for the real princess to be found. Valerie agrees... And she looks darn good in royal garb for a two-dimensional cartoon drawing from 1970. She also is far really easy. She goes with that really easily, too. (laughs) I I, I think I would at least question a few things. Oh, and Valerie looks so good she could fool Josie, who has the nerve to look shocked at the slow ball she just pitched for Alexandra Snark to hit out of the palace. (laughs) Yeah, it's like... It doesn't take much to fool you, Josie. Now, I have questions. And these aren't of the, now wait just a minute variety, but some of this could have been prevented. This whole thing couldn't be conducted over the plane? Yeah, you'd think they could have just had the guards explain everything to him on the plane. And on top of that, having all those guards armed with swords and later guns, it's kind of a show of force and after deceiving them with a plane on autopilot that's that's more sus than your average round of among us (laughs) and the band is just okay with this seemingly they are even though they panicked and ran first i guess they don't have as much chance to run at this point so our next scene establishes evil eyes headquarters and in the famous words of Tom Servo, paraphrased, they're establishing the heck out of that headquarters. <laughs> He's got one heck of a throne. Yeah, he addresses his goons as slaves also. I can only presume they're under his spell, too. I hope so. Other... Making them less hooded desert nomads and more hoodwinked bystanders. I... Yes, I I hope that's the case, too, because otherwise I don't like implications that could be made from that statement. Yeah. Also, man, um, the evil eye needs to do something about that skin. Hmm. Yeah, he's blue. Dabba-dee, dabba-doo. 
He's also wise to the scheme and orders Valerie brought to her as his, the eye from which he derives his name spins above his throne. I, I think they call that, uh, what, what, what do they call that disease? Uh, Smurfotius. So long story short, too late, Val is kidnapped in the night and her cries for help are dismissed by Melody as a dream until Alexandra tells her it's legit. And when they go, they rush outside to uh, see what's going on and Seemingly also took time to get dressed. Yeah, they got dressed fast. I guess when and you only have one outfit that you wear in every episode, you get really quick at it. Yeah. So the girls crash into the guys, and Sebastian spots the nomads still parked. Wow. They're in such a hurry to take the foul princess. Look at them not burn rubber. Well, you know, maybe they're careful because, you know, they're under a spell. Alan has a plan, Alexandra fumbles it while insisting her way is better, and they land in a dump truck. An armed dump truck, but still technically a dump truck. Fortunately, Sebastian's able to use a mallet to uh, help them escape from the giant pot that Alexandra got them stuck in, as well as get the mallet stuck in Alexandra's mouth. She'll make some guy happy eventually. <laughs> oh dear. And then Melody mistakes the dump lever for a brake, leaving only her and Sebastian on the truck. This has Josie, Alan, and the Cabots walking the desert, with Alexander being his dramatic self saying he'll perish under the burning sun, then under the burning moon when he's reminded it's nighttime. Uh, you know, the burning something. Thankfully, the tracks are easy to follow to an oasis. Anyway, here's Wonderwall. Music joke. <laughs> the evil eye, meanwhile, is gloating in front of Valerie, Melody, and Princess Mawilla. Neither the real princess nor her body double will do what he says, but he believes they will when the time comes. And Melody says she'll think of something, and the eye puts her under his spell. You are now my slave. Yes, oh great mustard. Master! Oh, poor mustard. Melody. <laughs> mustard. Poor Melody. I hate mustard. I'd hate for anyone to have to work under that. So the rest of the gang are what seems to be a dead end and try to figure out where the hidden passage is. In the process, Alexandra finally gets a date. <laughs> Lots of them. Yep, yep. Shakes his whole tree worth of them out. You could say that they hit her head first. <laughs> And Alexander actually gets the right idea with the old open sesame, though he's reluctant to lead the way, of course. Of course. The eye is watching them via hidden camera while Melody is uh, under her kooky version of the hypnosis spell, which is the point which I can't tell if she's messing with him or not. Same way she's not. She's just... Yeah. <laughs> she's just that much of a ditz. <laughs> And you know what? This I think this is a missed opportunity on the scriptwriter's part. It would have probably been funnier to, to have it turned out she was messing with that with him. Maybe too clever for her, but or how uh, they play her, or maybe just too clever for these writers. <laughs> that too, because she even has to be told to open the door when ordered to capture them. Well, it is worth mentioning this show does like to play up melodies a dumb blonde yeah. as much as possible. 
But to her credit, she's still adorable. Melody also gives away the whole plot to the gang when she reaches them, and Josie says she'll snap her out of it with a trick from a movie, but Alexandra says she saw the movie twice. Pettiness knows no bounds. Not for Alexandra, that's for sure. Her efforts fall flat, and Josie's snapped fingers do the trick. But with the eye not aware, Alan has a plan. He really is bodybuilder Fred, isn't he? He really is. I, I do have to mention Alexandra's second attempt to wake up Melody by dousing her with water, but only for the... Seemingly, she grabbed the worst bucket ever, because when she raises it above her head to dump it on Melody, it instead breaks and, and gets Alexandra wet. Mm. Mind out of the gutters, people. That's the second episode in a row I've had to say that. <laughs> Oh yeah, and Alexander telling her that was a great that was a great trick. Why, I'd like to see you do it again, and only for her to throw the bucket on top of him. So Melody calls to the evil eye to tell him the intruders are done for, while Princess Milwilla apologizes to Valerie. Now the Pussycats resident tambourine player believes they'll be okay, like in the movies. I sense a theme with the writer here. <sighs> I mean, the movies is where he got all of his ideas of how this country, supposed fictional country, is. Probably. And we come back from commercial break with the, with the remaining girls dressed as dancers, and so is Alexander. As Alexander explains his own plan back to him for the sake of the audience. This feels like it was done in reverse. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Alexander does often come up with the plans, but doesn't ever want to, but never wants to per, be part of them. I, I think there's one episode where he gives like a whole like elaborate plan, and Alexander's like, that's a good plan, except there's one problem. It's like, what's that? What are you going to do, dear brother? Oh, I'm going to just sit here where it's safe. <laughs> but you remember when we discussed the Gilligan cut, right? Yeah. This feels like we should have gotten that here with Alexander insisting, no, no, I'm not dressing up as a dancer. And then he's dressed as a dancer. <laughs> no, I just remember the Freakazoid episode where they talked about that. <laughs> but, yes. So the plan is put into action as Valerie recognizes Alexander and feels compelled to tell the princess he's not a hero, but a chicken. She's not wrong. No, but... That, still that's still be, a little cold. Yeah, still could be a little more appreciative of, you know, attempted the rescue. Yeah. The rescue plan starts to go awry when Alexander steps on his sister's foot and she hands him her dummy princess. Uh, you see, we forgot to mention the plan, didn't we? Uh, yeah, we did. We got so wrapped up in describing what went wrong, we did something wrong ourselves. Don't! You can tell it's late when we record this. <laughs> the idea is that the, the quote-unquote dancing girls are going to go in, distract the guards, and replace Valerie and the princess with these balloon dummies. Somehow I doubt that would have worked, considering looking at these giant balloon dummies. Yeah, they're, they're so inflated that when Alexandra hands him the dummy to Alexander who already has a dummy of his own, 
he floats up to the ceiling and tries to pass it off as them being light on their feet. It's gotta be the shoes. That's when the evil eye arrives and calls Alexander the ugliest dancing girl he's ever seen. Oh, I've seen worse. Yep. Yep. Uh, instead, I, I just remember there's an episode of DuckTales where uh, both uh, Scrooge and Flintheart Glomgold had to uh, cross-dress as dancing girls, and it's like, and the the uh, the Sultan or whatever was yeah, like... Yeah, there was a Flintstones cartoon from the 70s along those lines, too. Yeah, but I, I was just remembering in that one, he was like, oh, why did I ever buy such ugly camels... Uh, rejects his camels as you two, and, and Scrooge is like, two for one cell? Hmm. Now, as far as this particular insult goes, Alexandra takes offense, since all Cabots are beautiful. But that tips off the evil eye. Especially when she says, uh, how dare you say that about my brother? Alexander tries to fix things by saying, she meant sister, but yeah, now it's too late. Sebastian has to hurry to free the prisoners as the guards bring Alexander down to the ground and the dummy costumes down on them. Chase sequence begins with the Scooby-Doo chase music in the background. But we get the proper chase sequence outside with the ATVs and a song from the singers hired to play the band on record. And, yeah. Basically, the gist of this scene is Alan is a distracted driver causing the gags. However, Alexander does make him aware of, uh, does, like, actually manage to help him on his driving in one part of the chase scene, so there is that. Yeah. In the end, a watermelon truck accident immobilizes the evil eye, and he's unmasked. One of the very few times there was an unmasking on this particular show, except not quite. Turns out, the evil eye, there's a reason for his blue skin. He's a robot. Wow. He's far more impressive looking than Charlie the Robot. Hmm. And again, impressive tech for, you know, 1969. Yeah, considering the height of animatronics was uh, Disney's Haunted Mansion. I, I, if there's anything I'm going to give the, the Charlie the Robot episode of Scooby-Doo credit for as well, yeah, that uh, robot is pretty advanced for 1969. It kind of looks like what I'd imagine a robot would look like if one managed to be created in 1969. <laughs> this, not so much. <laughs> the crew rewires the robot to get back on the trail, leading to, of course, the Casey Kasem-voiced royal advisor. Melody says, how does it feel to be a slave instead of a master, mister? And he's like, wet, master, very wet. Back on the throne, the princess thanks the gang and offers them anything they want. And Alexandra finally gets to lead her band, Alexandra and the Cool Time Cats. Uh, cat, singular, since the only other member is Sebastian. And yeah, nobody yeah. is impressed. No. Though, it is worth mentioning that Alexandra and the Cool Time Cats was the name of the group she suggested when Josie asked her to join the band in the comics. Interesting. I like Alexander's line as it's like uh, her band is going to be a one uh, a one night show because that's all I can stand or one night stand because that's all I can stand. Right. So I basically picked this episode because of its Valerie focus because well we both like Valerie. Yep. But this mm, this was a little uneven. 
It's not one of the better episodes, to be honest. No. Things will look up when we return from the break. We will return in a moment to Josie and the Pussycat. Right, the minute we stop, everybody out and we'll make a break for it. On Boomerang from Cartoon Network. On the next Penny and James podcast, Hanna-Barbera tried to infuse some fresh life into the Scooby-Doo formula by drawing upon auto racing movies and shows of the preceding decade. The result was Speed Buggy, led by the sputtering engine sounds of Mel Blanc and the sole acting role of Phil Luther Jr. Did it capture the checkered flag? We find out in two weeks. Now back to the Pussycats, where their speakers go to 11. I gotta admit, their travel budget must have been really impressive. First the Arabian Peninsula, now Lima, Peru. This is why they're always broke. (laughs) I mean, it's just plain crazy. (laughs) This episode is the Jumping Jupiter Affair, which should give you an idea of, of some of the stakes involved. We open with the gang astride what I'm thinking are llamas, and they're hoping to find some new sounds for their next record amidst the smaller villages of Peru. Alexander boasts that he's seen 37 John Wayne movies while doing a cute impression of the Duke, and proceeds to crash land in a giant vase outside a curio shop as Alexandra snarks he should have seen 38. (laughs) That is a heck of a run he got, though, before doing it. <laughs> also, I noticed they called the llamas yamas in this. Is that... Yeah, I had to double check. For for a second, I thought they might have been alpacas, but nope, they're llamas. But, I mean, they call them yamas. Is that, like, is that even remotely correct? Um, I guess it depends on your regional accent. Maybe. I'm not going to pretend to know for sure. Yeah, but I can't say it definitely seemed to be a bumpy ride for everyone. Yeah, but as they proceed through the mountains, Alexandra believes it's going to be Dull City as they pass a peak with a face on it. Wow. And then we get to see a preview of the villains to come. Yeah, you see, the peak starts glowing, and we crossfade to the exterior of a diamond mine to find aliens Somewhat robotic-looking aliens at that, I might add. But I don't think that was the intention. It's actually a pretty good design, I'm going to say, for at least the, the face part. Also, someone got inspired at Hanna-Barbera because they they did a freaking one of those, like, light sheens on the eyes of one of them in that scene. Hmm. And I was just like, all right. Surprising amount of extra detail. Now, these aliens are Zor, voiced by Hal Smith and an unnamed captain performed by John Stevenson. Now, as the Pussycat team argues about whether or not to go back, they settle on, going the same direction they were already proceeding in, right into the path of the mine and these aliens. Do we want to say some of the credits that uh, Hal Smith and uh, John Stevenson have? Well, we've heard John Stevenson a lot. (laughs) Oh. We've heard him in Top Cat. We've heard him in... Wacky Races. Wacky Races and uh, and the Mumbly Show, and we'll be hearing him again several times in the Transformers and the Hair Bear Bunch and on and on. Okay, but what about Hal Smith? About Hal Smith? Take it away, Pemmy. Well, I did actually mention one of his other roles just a few minutes ago as Flint Hart Glomgold. 
Okay. He was also the voice of Al for the first three, or the first four original Winnie the Pooh shorts. Uh, he's well known for playing the town drunk on Andy Griffith. He also was Al on the the uh, new adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Okay. He was also Goliath on uh, Davy and Goliath. So. Oh, Davy. And he's also Gyro Gyrolus, uh in uh, DuckTales. Okay. Uh, he, but I also uh, hilariously remember him as uh, <laughs> as Dirk the Daring's mother-in-law. And I'm not, I, I mean that, mother-in-law in uh, Dragon's Lair 2. Mm. Now back to our cartoon. Alexander had previously joked he wouldn't pay six cents for Alexandra's sixth cents. But after the title card, he takes it back. Now he wouldn't pay her a penny. Let's see. I do have to give uh, credit for Alexander on that. That's that was a good line. It's like I won't give you two cents for your sixth cents. Still, she found a village, an abandoned one on that. And as Melody jokes about the deserted village being out for dessert, the elder appears out of nowhere and warns them to leave, or the beings from another world will be angered. We also get to see. Uh... Sebastian gets scared by a frickin' weirdly drawn toucan. Not just weirdly drawn, the sound this thing makes. <laughs> Folks, I'm not into ornithology, which means birds. Birds, birds, such a lovely word, much lovelier than birds. <laughs> but I did learn that Peru is home to 1,800 bird species. So... I wasn't going to try and identify what bird they drew inspiration from for that wild bird call. No, but I will say this. I wouldn't want to follow his nose. Hmm. Sebastian's panic causes him to latch cloths first onto the Cabot's llama, driving it to the green glow with the other pussycats and Alan following, leading them straight into the diamond mine and the hands of the aliens. And there goes Melody's danger-sensing ears. That they only remember about every other episode. Yeah. And also a little late, if you ask me. It's like Spider-Man Spider-Senses in that Spider-Man cartoon. Mm-hmm. So they're led to Zor, who Alexandra's about to mouth off to when Alexander gets her to clam up. Good job, Alexander. Yeah. The Jupiterians... I think that's what you call people from Jupiter. This has never come up. Could be Jupers. Hmm. Also, Jupiter? I thought they were from outer space. (laughs) They're hunting for diamonds. And Alex congratulates them and then tries to leave. And they'll be leaving, all right, for the mines. Via a vacuum tube. Wow, what years before Futurama at that? Mm Mm-hmm. In the mines... They find the entire village at work, and the captain insists that the gang joins them. Alexandra refuses, but that doesn't last long when they see the uh, disintegration beam. Wow, that tech really improved since Jupiter got their hands on it from Mars. Marvin must be really peeved. I wish I could do a Marvin the Martian voice. It has made me very angry. (laughs) Very (laughs) angry. Can you say they bootlegged my they bootlegged my technology? They bootlegged my technology. 
Okay, you started to go like that's like the Thurston Hal version of <laughs> Marvin the Martian for a second there. Uh, uh, my nasally voice. It's a side effect of it. Good job, though. This demonstration sends Alexander digging up to the ceiling, only to fall, get caught by a Jupiterian, and let down onto the ground by the same. Put me down! Clonk. So, they're set to work, and Melody can't figure out the right end of the shovel. Not to mention the very weird animation of, for whatever reason, Alan is hitting rocks that are going down a conveyor belt with the pickaxe. Mm. And it looks less like he's breaking them and more just moving them constantly. Now the crew decides to ask the villagers to help them overthrow the alien taskmasters, citing the numbers advantage. But then they find out Zor has the locals over a barrel. If they don't comply, he'll destroy their homes. Yep, because they see the flying saucer, which is terrifying, and may have a great weapon. Also, to be quite honest, I I'm not, I don't know about them, but that disintegration beam alone would make me pretty much go, e you know? Yeah, yeah, if they have that kind of technology, imagine what that would be like on a vehicle scale. Yep. The Jupiter captain insists everyone get to work, and then, of course, we find out this is all a hoax, as Zor and his captain unmask to boast about how they have the superstitious villagers hoodwinked. Because of course they do. Before we got that scene, I will give uh, Alexander good points for his uh, cover-up whenever the guard catches them with the uh, with the villager asking what they're doing. He's like, oh, just getting some good diamond, uh, diamond mining tips. Hmm. Hey, it worked. It turns out the alien craft is a projection on the clouds because they just had to play into one of Pembroke's pet peeves. <laughs> I don't know if it's my pet peeve as much as I just find it hysterical that it's like all these old cartoons are just like projectors are magic and can just project an image anywhere. <laughs> it's like 3D hologram tech before, you know, that was even a thing. So the villagers are allowed back home, but the Pussycats and company have to keep working. Golly, they must really dig our digging! <laughs> Either that or they're trying to work them to death. After commercial break, the gang have had enough and dig their way to some barrels in an attempt to escape. Barrel? <laughs> they roll about and stop when the alien guard looks, which just reminded me of a Metal Gear game. <laughs> but that comparison ends when Sebastian crashes into the cabots and Alexandra insults her own pet. Now yeah, that happens a lot. Who does Alexandra not insult? Herself. <laughs> oh, and Alan. Now they're rolling along the mines with the foul aliens in pursuit, and now the whole thing seems more like Donkey Kong Country. However, they find the barrels in a dead end and decide to blast them. Yep. But the crew are, are in hiding via stalactites. They evade capture that way, but they crash to the ground after Alex expresses his relief. You know, to the credit, Alexander is literally holding, like, Sebastian, Alexandra, and Valerie. So, uh, props to him. So the group so eventually reaches a dead end that needs to be blasted via dynamite, but hasn't yet. 
And Mel- Melody misunderstands Alan's explanation that they do it to make new tunnels and decides to just sit and wait for a new tunnel. And sets exactly on the plunger. Yeah. Accidentally creating their escape route. That must be the weakest dynamite ever. Yeah, if we've learned anything from Mythbusters, you stay as far away from explosives as you can. Seemingly the only one that got shook up by that was Alexander. As Melody's just sitting there like nothing even happened. Well, you could shake up Alexander with a chicken feather. That's fair. Once they're outside, Alan wants a closer look at the spaceship, and Valerie has an idea. A human-sized kite. It's plausible. Uh, Now, going into this, for me, this almost became one of my trademark, now wait just a minute, moments. Because I thought this was the wrong character to be going up. But clearly I need to revise my note-taking process, because my fears were allayed when Josie offers to help Alan into the kite, and Alexandra, the show's source of perpetual comeuppance, insists it has to be her, and the wind carries her off. Because of course it does. The cabots are cursed as well. (laughs) So yeah, they use the character that this kind of gag works for in this cartoon's logic. So I will let the physics issues slide. And as Alan and Alexander try to recover Alexandra, Alexander is grabbed by the wind and the kite, too. And his screaming arouses Zor's attention. Yep, so (laughs) I guess you could say it's a Cabot kite now. Hmm. Zor turns on a searchlight, and the Pussycats and Alan hustle to get them out of sight by directing them into the cloud the spaceship is being projected on. I I do have to say, I like the scene where... Like Alexander and Alan before Alexander's picked up is like, don't, don't worry, sis, we'll catch you. And then as, me, as soon as she comes by them, they just duck. It's like, um, some catch, guys. Yeah, I'm not surprised by Alexander ducking. I'm surprised by Alan ducking, though. Now this path through the cloud clues Alexandra into the hoax. Because they don't hit it, and they just go by. They Also, they manage to hide behind the clouds. Is that all right? It's a very low-hanging cloud, apparently. Yeah. I think they call that fog. <laughs> I don't think you get that in this type of area, but regardless. Yeah. Also, I want to say Alexandra's got really strong feet, considering she's holding Alan's entire body with those. Hmm. So once they're all back on the ground and reunited, the plan is that Alex, Val, and Melody will tell the natives the truth, while Josie, Alan, and Alexandra will discombobulate, Alan's word, not mine, the projection. They actually use that word quite a bit in this series, and to be quite honest, I kind of like it. (laughs) It must be a technical term, because Valerie uses it too. (laughs) At the base camp for the mine, Zor scolds his minions saying the kids should be miles away by now, when, ironically, they're right under his nose. Don't. So Team Josie finds a projector, while Alexander gives a self-aggrandizing version of the tale to the locals, who agree to help if it gets rid of the mess everything is making. If they can get rid of that scary thing in the sky, they'll help them. Josie removes the image of the spaceship, but Alexandra can't help herself insisting that Josie can't get all the credit 
and she has to screw around and make shadow puppets. Yeah, she thinks that'll make it even more obvious that it's fake. Unfortunately, seemingly the villagers think it's an even more horrible monster. Even yeah. when she's making the bunny rabbit shadow puppet. Yeah, the natives are so upset, they chase Alexander, Valerie, and Melody around the village. And they have to disguise themselves with masks and pots over their heads to get them off the scent. Well, to the villagers' credit, they may have watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Now, there's a debate to be had about what kind of portrayals of non-white cultures are more damaging. Either the mocking undertones seen in theatrical short subjects, or the portrayals of ignorant superstition found here. Two middle-class white guys using silly cartoon dragons and raccoons as avatars are not the people to be having it. No. So we're just going to note that this is awkward as all heck in 2023 and move on. Yep. And go that away. Yep. That away to the mining center. As Josie wants to see the look on Zor's face when he realizes what a shambles his scheme has turned into. I, I do like the timing of this gag because like, cause then you hear just Zor say, then turn around and face the consequences. Yep. He got them cornered. And Alexandra wonders out loud what he can do. And, and she finds out. Cue a uh, closing uh, walls trope. Yep. Now that, my friends, is how you do a Gilligan cut. So Valerie's trio arrive back at the base, ditch their disguises, and find Sebastian, who lets them in on what's happening. I also want to say that I have concerns of Alexandra's uh, arc in all situations, because while... While Josie's worried that they're going to be made into pussycat pancakes, Alexandra bemoans the fact that they won't even get butter and syrup. Now, when the other trio arrives, I should mention that they're treating talking as a free action here, as the consistency of the distance between the spikes and the gang is never the same between cuts. Sadly, I get used to cartoons doing that. Yeah. Melody is dispatched to make Ringo eat his heart out by drumming on the controls to figure out which one stops the device. And hey, to her credit, it works. Until she hits the last button. Yeah, in her celebration, she triggers an alarm by accident. Don't! I also wanted to go back and mention, like, when they found Sebastian, who tells them about everything, they ask Sebastian where the other character, where the rest of the group is, and Sebastian responds with, to which Melody is like, oh, they're being tickled. <laughs> Alexander's like, that's not what that means. <laughs> right. So here comes the chase sequence. And as Sebastian hits a panic button, it seems at first glance, this one might have more meat on its bones than most chase sequences. The song's really good. Yeah. But, you know, the potential for gags with the bass going haywire is there, I think. Yep. But it, doesn't last since then they're outside after the first like third of the chase and the natives have caught up to them at least there's a lot of action going on yeah after one collision gag a second one seems to switch background sets at random between the mine's interior and exterior continuity errors in a hanna-barbera cartoon the scandal 
God forbid we ever do Barnyard Commandos. That makes the continuity problems with this look on target. Granted, we've also seen much worse in Lassie's Rescue Rangers. Oh, Lord. Night, day, night, day, night, day. And we get another inflation-related gag as some compressed air puts Zor and the captain into dire straits back at the Bitmine's base camp. The favorite scene of anyone on DeviantArt. And Zor is just sore. <laughs> so, the schemers are caught, the diamonds are given to the natives, and a feast is called for, which the band plays at. I, I gotta give the Pussycats some freaking credit. I mean, they give the, all the diamonds to the freaking villagers. They could have at least said, you know, we got plane costs and stuff. Can, can we have a few of those? Just, just, just a few. Very charitable. Very charitable. Not exactly profitable, though. As for the villagers dancing to the uh, music, I can only quote Homestar Runner. The time has come to bend at the knees. So I invite you, everybody, no pressure, put your mind at ease. This is what you call groovy? <laughs> More like super duper groovy. Uh. 70s slang, ladies and gentlemen. Still waiting for us to bring back the word dolt <laughs> to the lexicon. Let's bring back, uh, what was it? Combobberate as well. <laughs> so Alexandra just can't leave it alone and decides to play some of the tribe's own music, having found some on, on a sheet of paper. The elder recognizes it and tells everyone to go for shelter. She found the sheet music for a rain dance. <laughs> Well, you know, what can I say? She's all wet. Again. I gotta give Alexandra credit. She's got some amazing talent because she's actually playing a guitar that has no strings on it. Hmm. As Pinocchio would say, I have no strings attached. Yeah. So those are our episodes. And between the higher stakes adventures and the denser levels of slapstick comedy on display, courtesy of the comical Cabots... Josie and the Pussycats is actually a very distinct beast from the two shows it was designed to capitalize on. It's also one of my favorite Hanna-Barbera cartoons, after Scooby-Doo. Granted, we picked a pair of episodes that include elements that have aged like milk left out in the Arizona sun in July. But this is still good old-fashioned Saturday morning camp. Yeah. It, it's kind of like junk food for the mind. It's not like the most clever writing, or the best animation, but it's fun. You know, the best comparison I can think of is how we look at the 1966 Batman TV series today. We don't really take it seriously, but we can sit back and just laugh in equal parts with it and at it. Yep. Granted, I think part of that show, or at least in the later seasons, started to just be intentional, but... Mm. That's beside the point. And besides, if there's anything I love, it's some... Good old-fashioned camp. So despite staying on the schedule on CBS the following season, there were no new episodes of this incarnation of Josie and Company ordered by Fred Silverman and CBS. However, in 1972, they were spun off in space! Yep. That's seemingly a lesser budget, too. Yeah, but... 
the story of Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space is another story for another time. And I'm sure it's on the list. Eventually. Though I will say the character Bleep that appears in that does appear in Jellystone. Yeah. Now, the Pussycats' final non-rerun animated appearance on Saturday morning would be alongside the Scooby Gang in the second season of the new Scooby-Doo movies in 1973. But that wasn't always going to be the case. The Cabots, Sebastian, and Melody were intended to appear in Laugh Olympics. Yeah, there's even some early like uh, artwork and design art and promotional art showing that. Yeah, but Archie didn't renew their agreement with Hanna-Barbera, leading to the kerfluffle we discussed in our Captain Caveman podcast. Isn't it nice how these things are all starting to tie together? All right, not to mention, also, I'm pretty sure mentioned some of that in the Mumbly and Wacky Races podcasts as well, since they yeah. also got involved in that craziness. Now, meanwhile, the Josie and the Pussycats comic book would run until 1982, and segments of that book would be republished in various Archie compilations over the years. One-off revivals and miniseries would follow, and in 2001, Universal Pictures brought the characters to the silver screen with Rachel Lee Cook, Tara Reid, and Rosario Dawson impeccably cast as the trio. Rosario Dawson is the most beautiful woman in Hollywood, as far as I'm concerned. Frankly, all three of them are lookers, especially here. (laughs) Unfortunately, the movie flopped at the box office, probably due to being mismarketed. Which is a pity, because it actually was a really good movie. Yeah, and it has since become a deserving cult classic. And if there's anything I'm going to give that movie credit, is the fact that they had the absolute guts to make almost the entire movie a setup for one singular joke. Now, around that time, Deke announced that it picked up the rights for a new animated adaptation, but nothing ever came of it. No, I can only imagine Deke's own financial problems probably had something to do with that. And I also have to presume the financial failure of the movie is a factor in keeping this known property with a metric and English unit measurements crap ton of nostalgic appeal from becoming its own thing once again in animation. You know, seemingly they appear in in Riverdale. Riverdale, thank you. Yeah, they've been major secondary characters in, in several various Archie projects, including Archie himself, at one point, settling the whole Betty Veronica thing by picking Valerie. Props to you, Archie Andrews. Yeah, it took that redheaded nut long enough to get some taste in women. <laughs> Unfortunately, that was not to last. Yeah. But, but hey, I'll still give props. They also, uh, I also know Josie and the Pussycats appear in the uh, Archie, <laughs> Archie's and Sharknado crossover. Oh, dear. Which has both one of the most hilarious and also terrible scenes with Sabrina, the teenage witch. But but that's beside the point. Well, while we've been doing all this talk about cats, I think somebody replaced our Cheerios with Meow Mix. So you know what that means. Garfield! <laughs> Sorry. It's time to restock the breakfast cereal. See ya!
The Penny and James got a sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.